Good morning. Uh, thought I should let you, as long as George shared something. Eric and I uh, prayed together this morning at 7.30 here at the church. So it's his first Sunday as a senior pastor. Amen. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians. And um, would you please stand? Colossians 1, 15 to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father, we have read your word. These are your words and your heart to us today, and I pray uh, by the by the power of your spirit and by the presence of Christ, you will lead us uh, through this text and pray, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts as you see. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, I read a, a story of a woman who wrote uh, of buying a new car that was loaded with all sorts of high-tech computer options. And the first time she drove her car in the rain, she turned a knob which she, which she thought was for the windshield wipers, but instead a message flashed up on the screen on her dashboard that said, drive car in 360 degrees. So she had no idea what that meant, so she drove to the side of the road and pulled out her manual. And in there, she learned that while trying to turn on the windshield wipers, she had inadvertently turned the internal compass in the car's computer. And in doing so, the car had lost its sense of direction. So to, to correct the problem, the computer instructed that the car be driven in a full circle, 360 degrees, and then face north. And the compass then would reset. 
That's what we do every Sunday morning at Aerosmith Baptist Church. After making our way through the winding path of life that leads us through the fallen world that we live in during the week, we gather together on Sunday to reset the spiritual compass of our souls, to once again point preeminently towards the true north of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that through preaching, through proclaiming the word of God, reminding us who God truly is and what his truth proclaims to us. Now preaching, proclaiming the word of God, has seen and continues to be an area of controversy in the church today. Many throughout history, as in today, have sought to severely diminish the importance of preaching the word of God in exchange for good feelings and emotional unity. John Steinbeck once wrote about his thoughts about sermons while attending a church in New England. And this is what he wrote. It has been a long since I have heard such a good approach. It is our practice now, at least in large cities, to find from our psych psychiatric priesthood that our sins aren't sins at all, but accidents that are set in motion by forces beyond our control. But there was no nonsense in this church. As he preached, the minister, minister reassured us that we were all pretty much a sorry lot. And he was right. Having softened us up, he then went into a glorious fire and brimstone sermon. He spoke of hell as if he was an expert. Not of the mush, mush hell of the soft days today, but the well-stoked white-hot hell served by technicians of the first order. Amen, he says. The great English actor William McReady was once asked, you know, once asked a very prominent preacher this question. Why is it that you appear before large crowds night after night with fiction, yet I am preaching the essential unchangeable truth of God and I'm not getting a crowd at all? To which McCready answered, simple, I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present truth as though it was fiction. In writing to preachers, the Puritan Richard Braxter once said, whatever you do, let the people see that you are of good earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale or patching up a gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seems not to mean what he speaks or to care much whether his request is granted. The Apostle Paul did not preach, tr pre preach truth as if it was fiction. Neither was he funny or smooth or fancy in speech. Paul preached the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, he wrote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Paul understood his call to preach the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1.11, he said, I was appointed a preacher. And the word preacher is literally in the Greek, it means someone who makes public announcements on the behalf of another. And the master of his soul, Paul was called by God himself. Now, Paul was not a philosopher or a moralist or one of the wisest men on earth. He simply was called to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ. His business was to deliver a message that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, adding nothing, taking, uh, altering nothing, omitting nothing, and delivering nothing but God's word in Jesus' name, carrying in the power and the authority of God. Now, at the end of last week, the apostle spoke with us about his preaching the gospel. Uh, back in Colossians 1.23, as we ended, he says this. He was talking to the church in Colossae, and he, he exhorted them to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul was made a minister, a preacher, not of his own choosing, but as the choosing of God. Now Saul of Tarsus never intended to become a proclaimer of the word of God or the gospel or even an apostle for Jesus Christ. In fact, the opposite was true. He had dedicated himself to destroying the integrity and credibility and reality of Jesus Christ and the church. Yet Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road and he was forever changed and transformed. Just like Paul, if we truly cross paths with Jesus, we also can have our own Damascus Road experience because like Paul, when we encounter the risen Christ, we will suddenly be blind to the things of this world and given sight to the things of God. When we surrender our hearts to God, we will also be possessed and empowered by God as Paul was. In the first verse of our text for today, Paul writes, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. The word stewardship in this text means to um, manage a household or manage possessions of, of someone else's. So a steward is someone who's been given a position of great trust and great responsibility in handling the affairs of someone. Now, brothers and sisters, as born-again Christians of Jesus Christ, we have been chosen, we have been called to be stewards of the ministry of preaching, proclaiming, announcing, teaching, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are stewards of God's blessings, God's gifts, God's talents, God's ministry. We are God's chosen people for the means of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And the call of Paul's life is also the call upon our life. And our text tells us that just as Paul was chosen in verse 1 of chapter 1 by the will of God, we are also 
called to proclaim the gospel in fully carrying out the preaching of the word in verse 25. We are to do that by not just speaking, but by the ways that we live, and most of all for us, how much more mature we can become in our faith. We, it says, in him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may everyone be mature in Christ. In God's word this morning, God, uh, Paul gives us six motivations for why he was called and why he pursued the call of God. Paul first proclaimed Jesus Christ because he was joyfully passionate about following Jesus. He starts his, our text for today by just simply saying, now I rejoice. We are passionate about things that give us our most joy. For those of us who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the source of our, all of our joy should start first and foremost with Jesus. Now, joy is, in Jesus is not really a feeling, but rather an explosion that deep in our souls affects every fiber of our being. Joy in Jesus begins when we first meet him at the cross, which then grows into more maturity and a deeper walk with him. This was the experience of King David in Psalm 16 when he said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul proclaimed Jesus because he was passionately joyful about following Jesus. Secondly, Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ because he wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ. And people probably just want me to pass over this one, but this is, this is probably the, almost the core one here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now Paul was no stranger to pain and persecution. When he surrendered his life to God and came to faith in Jesus, he was moved from being a prosecutor to being the prosecuted. And Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When we proclaim the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will experience struggle, pain, and suffering. Paul tells us that in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. He says that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we also might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. If we truly follow Jesus, we will suffer. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now Paul here is not saying that he was experiencing something that was lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that the church, as the body of Christ, has a corporate relationship with Jesus to share the life of Jesus. 
And if we share the, the life of Jesus, we also share the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection with Jesus, then we will also share in those sufferings. In Philippians 1.29, we read, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. In the same way, those of us who are called pastors and preachers are to be the same, to that the ministries, the thing that we do, my job's description is pretty much you have to suffer. And you feel that, feel that at times. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the church by being filled up what was lacking in the Christ afflictions in the church because God offers himself through Jesus Christ to the world by offering himself as a sufferer for the world. And that means if Jesus did that, then that's all our call too. And for the most part, we in North America are pretty fragile in this area. When we say suffer, everybody just cringes. The suffering of Jesus' love, the suffering of Jesus' mercy, the suffering of Jesus' grace for lost, lost sinners is seen in the cross. And people should be seeing that in us also. The suffering in love and grace for lost sinners who are saved is basically the gospel being lived out in the church, in our lives, and wherever we walk this earth. Paul also proclaimed Jesus Christ because he wanted to fully give himself as a servant to Jesus. For the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul tells us here again that he didn't volunteer to be a minister for Jesus Christ. He was appointed and ordained by God to be a servant and that servants for God was to pre- proclaim the precious truth of the word of God. And though that's true for pastors, that's true for each one of us also. Though each and one of us is called by God to do it, not all all of us have to stand up here and and do what I do. But there is a special responsibility for every pastor that's called by God. We are called to teach and preach the whole Bible, even the parts that you don't like, and especially the parts I don't like. Paul himself spoke of this in Acts 20 when he was leaving Ephesus, he said to the elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's been said that a pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I would disagree. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My responsibility is to God. And I must be true to his principles and his truths of his word, regardless whether I or anyone else feels comfortable or afflicted. In Hebrews 4, we read that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul proclaimed Christ because he wanted to fully serve him by proclaiming the word of God. Paul also proclaimed Jesus Christ because he trusted in the promises of God. Paul writes of the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the mystery here is for the nation of Israel was would how would God fulfill his promise to Abraham, which was God's call, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Jews hearing this, even the Jewish Christians, uh, would be asking these questions. How would God make Abraham's name great? How would Abraham's descendants become a great nation? How would all the families of the earth be blessed through Abraham's family? And in Paul's day, that really still was not clearly settled for people connected to the Jewish faith. But here, Paul proclaimed that God had solved that mystery. That mystery is that which the saints came to know when Paul made the word of God fully known, which was by God's abundant mercy and grace, God sent his promised Messiah through the descendants of Abraham so he might bless all the nations with Jesus, Lord and Savior. The hope of glory here is God's plan to send a Savior to deliver God's people, which was for the Jews and, and the Jews wouldn't like this, Gentiles, us, as well. And most assuredly, when Paul proclaimed, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. No, at that moment, the Jewish Christians, Christians would have been, have been outraged for that. They considered themselves the chosen people, even among Christians. But Paul tells them that it's always been God's intent, uh, God's purpose to include us Gentiles. God's promise is for all of those whom he chooses. The Jewish Christians were faced with the reality that if God was putting hope in them and also the Gentiles, then they must much have a, a bigger God than they expected and that they grew up with. This is why Paul could write from Romans 9, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. Because it is so, we who are not Jewish, uh, not, of the, not of the nation of Israel, possess the promise of God, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. <laughs> Seen if you're still there. Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ because he trusted in the promise of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul also proclaimed Jesus Christ because he wanted to fulfill the purpose of the gospel. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here again we see that word pro proclaim. And in verse 23, Paul used it in regard to publicly preaching the gospel. And here he uses it more in the realm of teaching and preaching for growth and for spiritual maturity. And this connects uh, from what Paul had written earlier in uh, verses 9 and 10, 
when uh, Paul wrote, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what I might take here this morning is the church is proclaiming is not to be a program, but is to be a person. And that one is him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus. That's our program. Proclaiming in the church, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom is to be done in the church in two different ways. There is first personal proclaiming, which is like mentoring and exhorting one another to, to know and live out the word of God and live out the gospel, but also corporate proclaiming, like we're doing right now with preaching and teaching on Sundays or during the week in shepherd groups and such. So there's just different ways that we proclaim. And uh, notice the phrase here, everyone, is used three times in this verse. So I think Paul means everyone, <laughs> which means every one of us needs to be not uh, just corporately, but also personally proclaiming. And why, why would he say that? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? Well, simply in this context, uh, Paul's purpose was that so those in the church would be so mature in Christ, they would not be influenced or swayed by the false beliefs that have been, be, been taught in the church in Colossae, um, which the process of maturity of faith reflects what the, what the real ministry of the church is supposed to be, which Jesus talked about in Matthew 28, and that is to make disciples. This is not just accomplished with people coming to faith and then coming to church, but also through teaching and training and mentoring and serving and uh, gathering together and worshiping. Lastly, Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ because he was enabled by the power of Jesus himself. For this I toil, he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now the word toil here in the Greek means to work out to the point of exhaustion. Paul is telling us that basically he's done everything that he could do and the, the, the energy he did have at that point was not his, but God's. The key is that um, we can't, when we work for God, work with our own strength, uh, do maybe have some kind of ingenious thing that we can figure a shortcut, none of it works. When Paul speaks of the word struggle, he is speaking about the maximum expenditure of human effort and the maximum dependence on the divine work of God, at both at the same time. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he writes, and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, we know that Paul was in prison as he wrote this letter. And we know he was uh, struggling in prayer for those in the church. And he was probably also struggling with writing and teaching and preaching and counseling and leading people in the church to be uh, uh, more mature in their faith, just like a pastor would do. And Paul then tells us the reason he brought that to to attention is that their hearts may be encouraged. Uh, The word encouraged here literally means to to exhort or strengthen. And the word heart here in the Greek is is the, the picture of like the core the core of what we are in your soul, basically. So Paul is exhorting the church uh, to, at, the, at their very deep core, be encouraged by all the things that, uh, not that he's doing it on their, for, for their sake, but the fact that there's a, there's a maturity here that we're going to look in in just a minute. Uh, Paul spoke of this back in verse 18 when he wrote, talked about Jesus being preeminent in everything. So what Paul tells us here is um, that Jesus is preeminent in everything when we are united in love, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together with love. So he's telling me, I'm doing all these things. I'm praying. I'm doing all, why do I want that to happen? So you guys will love, your, love God so much that you love each other. Imagine a church with that kind of a heart, a whole community where everybody is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and loving one another so that Jesus would be preeminent in everything. That fits with what Jesus said in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul desired that the Colossians understand and possess a genuine conviction and passion for God's love that would manifest itself in an active mutual love for one another. Paul is reminding us in the Colossians that faith without love is not faith. It's just an emotional feeling. Instead, Paul exhorts them and us to realize while it is by the gift of God that we have faith alone and we are saved, and that genuine faith manifests itself in a response to love God and then love one another. Spiritual maturity will be lived out in the church when those who love Jesus also love one another. And Paul tells us that we need that kind of love in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That that probably seems like an odd thing to have to love people in order to learn the depths of who God is. But it fits perfectly. The cross shows us that. The context of the entire book of Colossians flows out of Paul's concern that he's very much aware that it's easy for the church to miss the mystery of the hidden treasures and wisdom of knowledge of Christ by being misled by false teaching, which Paul tells us even so more so here, that we must love one another before we even get a chance to do that. The reality of this is that our faith in Jesus Christ is when even on Sunday morning we do communion 
But re what really matters is not just communion, but community. Both, both are essential. For the full assurance of understanding of God and the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ comes not from, not from study, not from understanding, but from corporate loving. Corporate loving. In the words of Burke Parson, community squeezes out self-centeredness. The only way we can corporately know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of Jesus is by proclaiming who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in our lives in the way that we love each other and love the people we are talking to. It's been said that a church is a bunch of people who know how miserable they are in the core of their hearts and how desperately they know they need Jesus and how much they know they really need each other. Only when our hearts are knitted together in love can we truly understand and treasure Jesus, which will cause us to reflect Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul is telling us here that he had been praying that Jesus would be so preeminent in the hearts of those in the church that they would be so united in love, which would cause them ultimately to know and understand and treasure Jesus, which would then make them so mature in their faith and in their walk with Jesus that they would not believe the false teachings of the church. And in that way, they wouldn't get caught up again in falling for false teachings. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This was, and always is, and always will be one of the major struggles of all Christians. The Greek word for plausible literally means to reason besides something. So if the target, if our target is the truth of God, and there is something alongside the truth of God that looks like the truth of God, but it might not be the truth of God. So a favorite weapon is of the devil to get us to focus on what's beside of God rather than straight on God or rather what's something that looks like the truth but not the real truth of God. To be deluded but with plausible arguments means to think that you know something is right but it's really wrong. And if, I don't know if you know this but all lies are based on a piece of truth. Now, truth and error can look the same, but one's counterfeit. We live in days, brothers and sisters, when almost everything is true, but it really is not. Plastic looks like metal, cardboard looks like wood, and paper looks like cloth, you know. Almost all movies, videos, and television programs are generated by computers. What you're seeing is not real. In fact, probably most things we touch and see in our world today is not real. But imitations have limits. If you start regarding them as real, you're in trouble. Paul's concerned about this in the church. We live in a day when plausible arguments have caused us to redefine sin. When the Bible defi defines sin as 
any failure to conform to the truths of God in action and attitude, the world, and even often the church, defines sin in terms of illness or dysfunction or ignorance or entitlement or in victimization or inability or misunderstanding. So then we get to decide how to define that and how it fits in with our life. But King David said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified by your words and blameless for your judgment. So whatever we're looking at, God knows if it's true. And then we have to look to him for help. Now we all desperately need to understand this because while we commonly believe that our actions and behaviors flow out of our opinions and beliefs, decades of studies on human behavior and research and social science reveals the exact opposite is true. Dr. Mike McMinn has written, more often than not, we first observe our behaviors and then craft our beliefs and opinions to be consistent with those behaviors. In other words, we justify what we have already decided or done by changing our beliefs. Now, none of us want to hear that. None of us do. But it's proved by science. It's also proved by the word of God. King David knew that. Listen to him in Psalm 19. When he's talking, you ever, Psalm 19 is about the word of God. And at the end, King David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Psalm 19 and also in our text for today, God is telling us we can know the clear difference between what is fact and fiction or truth or false. When we look through the filter of the essential and unchangeable truth of God, the word of God, who was with God, who was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, revealing to us his glory, his glory that was full of grace and truth, the word of God which is proclaimed every Sunday morning and proclaimed in shepherd groups during the week, all to reset the spiritual compass of our souls, once again to point preeminently to the true north of Jesus Christ as we make our way down the winding path that leads us through the fallen world of plausible arguments all week long, which will crumble and dissipate when we proclaim, preach, teach, share, read, study, memorize the word of God, reminding us of who God truly is and his promises and the word of God as the gospel and the mystery of God which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every 
lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or in other words, we disturb arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God because we have taken every thought captive to Christ. And in Jesus' name we say, Amen. Father, we, we bless you this morning for your word and for how true it is. And we, in the midst of all this, I pray that we would have understood a lot of us still are a work in progress. Because the word of God, the way you put it before us today, is probably not the way we're using it in our lives. So help us, Lord, to... Uh, under the call of the preeminence of Jesus in our life. Help us, Lord, to fall in love not just with you, but also with your word in a way that would keep us pointed towards you. Lord, we thank you, too, that it is uh, uh, the hope that we have in our sides, in our, live, in, in our lives, and in our families, in our church, that we can uh, someday, Lord, be in glory with heaven, you, but in, th in this moment now, you are with us. So as we walk through these days ahead of us, may we glorify you in all that we say and do. And Lord, in the context of our church today, anoint us with your love that would cause us to love as you love us. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.